Good morning. So you're getting the Christmas sermon this week since we were canceled last week. And uh, we pushed everything a week because of illnesses and people being gone and traveling. But it's good because I like this. Um, today's title of the sermon is Wise Men, eh? We're going to talk about those wise men. We're going to talk about who were the wise men. And uh, the important part is talking about the fact that the wise choose to worship. They're interesting fellows, the best that we can tell. And uh, they, still, they still made the decision to worship Christ. Uh, what is Christmas about? This is what we talk about every year. Everybody always gets up into arms. People talk, is it too paganized? Is it too commercialized? Is it not even full of the right events? We get a manger story. We hear poems and songs about situations that probably didn't even occur the way that they occurred. And the list goes on. Christmas is kind of what you're going to have to make it. I think that we live in a world where Christmas has become a lot of different things. Stories get told. Here's the story that they like to paint. Here's one with snowy mountain caps in back of a manger and pine trees. I don't think that was the picture of Christmas, but we like that. Here's another one. Notice the tiny baby angels. Everybody likes their tiny baby, baby angels at Christmas time. They put them up above this manger that has no back. I see this a lot. And then the wise men are arriving at the same time as the shepherds. And we just get this convoluted, everything thrown together Christmas story. And uh, the point of this is just, what does the Bible really say occurred? And what can we glean from what occurred? Um, regarding Christmas and celebrations, humans have the tendency to try to fit God into a narrative that they wish. Um, they want to include God, but not at their expense. The demands of God, um, their demands on God has to conform to what they want, the mode they want. So we kind of get a messy picture of half-truths and lost meaning inside things. And uh, we lose connections with, with what the Bible is really speaking. It is the tendency to create a tame, manageable creator God. People like to take this creator God and shove him into something that they can relate or fit into their lives. Um, a taming of an event that was literally shaping the cosmos, and we'll talk more about the shaping of the cosmos during this event. An event that the civilizations of the world knew was happening, um, and that some of them just didn't know the exact source. Um, the wise men and the magi knew. And wise men, magi, we can use interchangeably. The Greek word for wise men comes as magi, which you know even sounds like magic and that stuff. And um, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at the story. Um, we're going to kind of postulate where are these guys from? What is their connection with the rest of the Bible? It seems like it would be a strange thing just to throw into half a chapter and not have connections back to things that may have occurred in the Old Testament. So we're going to look at some of that stuff today. And we're going to talk about what the wise men were about, why they came, and what they provide a great example of us for. So let's read the story. Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
and the assembling and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is so written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by a different way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So some takeaways. The wise men, the magi come from the east. The Bible never refers to them as kings. They always refer to them as wise men and magi. They also refer to wise men other places in the Bible. We'll talk about that a little later. Um, they followed the stars. They were magi, most likely from what was left of the Babylonian Empire. Um, that's where we get the word wise men previously in the Bible as in reference to a group out of Babylon. Um, and they were referring to Jesus by King of the Jews, which is interesting, which means it shows us that they had some, some concept of Old Testament scriptures, which makes sense. Um, it was a trip long planned. It sounds like it was roughly two years after Jesus was born due to the fact that Herod had ascertained the moment that the star had originally rose. So you're talking about two years later, it is a 900 mile journey from where the wise men historically were centered, if it is that group of wise men. So you're talking a 900-mile journey from the east um, over the, most likely went to Jerusalem first as they were seen by Herod. If this is the group of magi or wise men that is talked about historically um, from Babylon, they were, they were pretty well known. Most people listened to what they said. There were some prophecies they did, um, they were known to be diviners of the stars. They were known to, to study both astrology and astronomy. Um, weird, I mean, sometimes they're referred, referred to historically as sorcerers. It's just a weird group to come worship, to come worship Christ. Um, but what's interesting is, is Yahweh speaks to them if they were indeed pagan Gentiles in dreams. So that Yahweh, creator, is talking to them directly which is also interesting because of what they're associated with. Um, they bring gold, frankincense, 
myrrh and gifts. Um, a lot of people just focus on the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we think historically that's why people say there were three of them. Um, those are all very valuable things. The gifts could have been, I don't know what. I'm guessing this was a stockpile of wealth that God was, was providing to Mary and Joseph for their journey and life down in Egypt. Um, you can get into the symbolism of all these different gifts. Um, but the fact is, is that's a lot of very expensive cargo. We don't know that there was three of them. Most likely, if they're going to travel 900 miles on the roads of, at that point, mid-Roman Empire, they're going to have an entourage. They're going to have guards. They're going to have people that procure food, different things like that. You're, you're talking a large caravan. You're not talking three guys on camels, each with their little satchel of gifts, whizzing through the desert. Um, and being that they had made a name for themselves, King Herod did accept them in, and King Herod was listening to them and took what they said to heart. Um, as soon as he, he's frightened, the Bible says he's frightened when they get there and they declare this, he's, there's something in him that stirs. So he believed them that they were reputable. We have no reason to believe that they're kings at all. Um, no reason to think there's three of them available riches. Like we said, it's a very unsafe journey to make for 900 miles. Um, who are the wise men? This is kind of where I'm at. Other people are there too. This is nothing new. But um, based on previous stories in the Bible and previous connections in the Bible, um, just going to walk you through it. There was the exile to Babylon that happened in the late Old Testament where they were, the Jews were taken. The Hebrews at the time were taken into Babylon. And some of them thrived there, and a lot of them ended up staying there. What we, what we end up finding out historically, reading historians, is that a lot of the Jews actually stayed in Babylon, um, even after some of them came back to rebuild the temple and, and do all the things that we know that they do. Um, but the most famous of these that went to Babylon uh, was Daniel, and he, he was given a Babylonian name, Belteshazzar, which sounds mystical and cool. Uh, there was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And if everyone has been watching their VeggieTales growing up, you all know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the names that they were given. In a matter of stories, if you read the book of Daniel, you kind of get the origin of, of this Jewish current into this group of wise men. Um, and the Bible says that in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of these four individuals, he found them ten, ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And so I'm going to read some stuff through Daniel here to kind of get an idea of why these wise men might have been looking for this. Uh, in Daniel, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to review this mystery, talking about when he, he interpreted the king's dream. First of all, the king is declaring that God is the God above all gods. So he's seeing God as creator God. He's seeing Yahweh in his place and the Lord of kings, realizing that the God sets kings in place. And a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery, and then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king 
And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Then later on in another story, it talks about how the king promotes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon even further. Uh, this is later after the king died and his son is taking over. He, this king is also having trouble with understanding what's being told to him. And his advisors tell him, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the, in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledgeable and understanding to interpret genes, dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Um, and as we go on, when we read more about Daniel, we start getting some of Daniel's prophecies himself. And Daniel, well aware of Hebrew scriptures, and his prophecies on top, when you read Daniel, you, you see that Daniel is envisioning Jesus multiple times in his dreams. He sees Jesus, the son of man, which is interesting because the only title that Jesus gives himself is son of man. So there's that connection there. Um, I believe the current wise men still study Daniel's text. Um, I believe that he brought the text with them. The Jews brought some of their writings with them. They weren't as codified, but in the, in the, remember in the time of Daniel, in the time afterwards, that's really when they start whipping out scriptures and second temple writings. Um, I believe that the astrologers, diviners were watching the sky, aware of the signs of Daniel's prophecies. Um, and I think they knew. I think they, they saw what they needed to see in the sky um, and I've always wondered what, what was this Christmas star? And in one of my last biblical studies classes I was taking, um, my professor went through it pretty good. So I'm going to show a little video of, of what I believe was in the stars at the time of Christ's birth based on astronomy computer programs that can whip back and based on the fifth Christmas story, which is Revelation 12. So... I don't think it's a coincidence that the Dead Sea Scrolls calendar that the Qumran people used is the only calendar in the ancient world that creates a time window for the Messiah's arrival that matches Jesus. Okay, I don't think that's a coincidence. This is a zodiac mosaic in a Jewish synagogue. There are a lot of these, a couple dozen of them that archeologists have found. And you would look at this and say, well, you know, these Jews must have been pagans then. No, no, they had a different perception of what was going on in the sky and who's in charge and what it means as opposed to the pagans. Pagan astrology, astronomy, there really wasn't much of a difference in the ancient world, is more like what we, look, what we think of today with horoscopes, that individual birth signs, you know, when I was born, what day, what's going on, that, that determines my fate, it determines my personality, it determines the outcomes of my life. No, it doesn't do any of those things. A Jew would say, that's heresy. Only God is sovereign. What you can tell though is that God is working a plan because God's plans are linked to time. So we need to be paying attention to what the skies are doing because they might tell us something about what God is about to do. 
Now, the people who were really into this would be the people at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Uh, they have a number of astronomical texts there. They track this like, let's put it this way. They separated from the Pharisees. They thought the Pharisees were liberals because the Pharisees used a calendar they didn't like. That's what, you know, we, we, we hear that and we think it's crazy, but they were, they were that serious about it. But I want to move from this idea that there was a Jewish conception of the skies were important, what's going on here, because they telegraph certain things to Revelation 12. Now, I can't prove this, but I suspect that what Paul was thinking, we actually have recorded in Revelation 12. But John, okay, in Revelation, says this. You know, several times he says, I looked up in the sky and saw. What if John actually meant what he said? What if he's keying parts of Revelation to astronomical signage? What if he's doing that? A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations, with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Okay, verse five is crystal clear. It's quoting a messianic psalm, okay? It's quoted elsewhere about Jesus. This is a reference to the birth of the Messiah. The notion of being caught up to God and his throne is a, is a notion of the resurrection and ascension. But before that, you get all this astronomical imagery. Now, I'm not the first one to suggest this, uh, but I suspect very strongly that this is what Paul was thinking about when he said, you know, hey, you know, have, have people heard about, you know, the Savior? You know, heard, like, heard, you know, what's going on here? And, you know, again, you'd expect him to say no, and, and he says, well, yeah, they actually have. And then he quotes Psalm 19. See, Revelation 12 doesn't exist yet. Okay, Revelation is the last book of the New Testament, but he quotes Psalm 19 and says, yeah, they've heard. The heavens declare the glory of God, so on and so forth. All these verbs of communication. Paul is associating the knowledge of the Messiah King, his arrival, with something going on in the skies. That much we can say. And Revelation 12 gives us a pretty easy thing to track in an astronomy program. Now, I'm gonna go through some of this, but before I do it, let me say what I'm not saying. There are those in evangelical circles, their belief was that you could look at the constellations of the skies and they told you the entire plan of salvation. Like they went through the Romans road in the heavens. I don't believe that. Okay, that overclaims the data. What I do believe is that, like the Magi, there's something going on at a certain time in history 
that told them there's going to be a divine king born in Bethlehem. Saddle up the camels. We have to go see. Jews would have noticed it. Gentiles like the, the Magi would have noticed it because they were watching. And they believed that the creator God, the God of Israel, was capable of telegraphing stuff like this. I don't think it's a coincidence that the Dead Sea Scrolls calendar that the Qumran people used is the only calendar in the ancient world that creates a time window for the Messiah's arrival that matches Jesus. Okay, I don't think that's a coincidence. So having said that, let's get into what I think we can claim. On your screen, you see a few things. There's the sun and the moon, and then there's a line. The line is called the ecliptic. This is a line that astronomers will draw to track the movement of the constellations. You notice the sun and the moon there. The sun is in the midst of the woman, the virgin, Virgo. Okay, and Virgo, again, there's different ways to understand the 12 stars around her head, depending on which astronomer, you know, you, you would read that uh, you can get 12 stars in this or that method. But again, she's the woman with the 12 stars, the virgin who is about to give birth. The sun is in her midst. It's Revelation 12. And the moon is at her feet. You'll notice above her head, I've included, I've let my astronomy program show Regulus and Jupiter. Now, they are not mentioned in Revelation 12, but if you put the information in Revelation 12 into an astronomy program, this is produced. What's the big deal about Regulus and Jupiter? Jupiter was the king planet, because it's the biggest one. Regulus was viewed as the king star because of its brightness. Okay, here, they are overlapped. They are superimposed on each other. If you are one of these old ancient astronomy guys, that's going to draw your attention because both are associated with kingship. Constellation Virgo is the only constellation that represents a woman. For 20 days, Virgo was clothed with the sun, but the exact day when the moon was under her feet, at the same time, and by the way, when Regulus and Jupiter intersect. And this is the view over Jerusalem, by the way. That could only occur during an 80-minute period within those 20 days. Okay, astronomy is linked to time, so we can calculate. You'll notice I've put the stick figures in now for the constellation so you can see this a little better. We've got in the center there, that's Virgo, she doesn't look as attractive as a stick figure. <laughs> Sun, moon at her feet. Jupiter and Regulus co-joined. And what is the constellation above Virgo? It's the lion. It's Leo. What does that mean to a Jew? The lion is the sign of what? The tribe of Judah. Okay? Judah, Regulus and and Jupiter are intersecting in Leo. What was that king, you know, what tribe was he supposed to be from? Oh yeah, yeah, Judah. And you notice below her feet, in modern astronomy programs, we have two constellations. One is Libra, the other is Scorpio. In the ancient world, they were one constellation, and it was like a scorpion with pinchers. 
And scorpions were at times referred to it as a dragon. But you have another option for the dragon. That is Hydra, also located below Virgo, but off the ecliptic. Doesn't really matter, you got two choices. Okay, he's ready to devour the child when the child is born. There's a small window of time when all of these things are present. September 11, 3 BC date also corresponded, what a coincidence, to Rosh Hashanah, Tishri 1, New Year's Day for Jews and the Day of Trumpets. Tishri 1 was also the New Year's Day of the civil calendar according to the calendar accepted in Judah during the divided monarchy. In other words, it marked the first day of the reign of every new Davidic king. What a coincidence. So I think that's what was in the heavens. I think that's what they saw. There's a lot of meaning in that. There's a lot of, that's based in just, you can get on a computer astronomy program and you can take things back and it, because it is, space is all, everything's on time. Um, so I, I think they, they knew and I think that's what, um, that's what they probably saw. And, and the fact that like the Revelation 12 thing fits in perfectly, it's just, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. Um, so they're watching that. They're noticing all of that. And they make their journey. Why did they make their journey? Like, what is the point of the journey? What's the point of all of this? Why were these people watching? And what were they going to do in the, the fruition, with the fruition? And I think, I think their journey, I think it's one of the greatest examples of crazy worship in the Bible. They went 900 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. And as far as we know, these guys were not even Jews. They may have had Hebrew scripture background, which would make sense, hence the title of calling them the king of the Jews. But what they did know is that the creator God, king of heaven, had sent down the divine king. He had come to earth as man. Guards, servants, equipments, animals, etc. We don't even know who all came in this company of people that we probably would have wrote off, but they went on this giant journey to come worship baby two-year-old Jesus. Maybe he didn't have the terrible twos because he was Jesus. But if he did, that's who they came to prostrate themselves before to worship because God had communicated it to them, Gentiles, through the heavens. And just what God is capable of and the fact that these guys, these, they gave it all. They came and they, I mean, they were hearing from Yahweh directly in dreams. That to me is a wonder. The way that, that God does the things that he does and who he does it with and you just never know who God is working with. And, uh, if you had been reading the text and studying the stars and something this big pops up, you are going to want to go. You are going to want to go behold this God King born on earth. They did all of this to give gifts and worship at the feet of a two-year-old toddler who had done nothing for them. There was nothing in it for them other than the realization that this is the hope come. This is what the scriptures pointed to. 
creator God in flesh among men, son of man, son of God. The religious rulers didn't catch this. This is what's fun is these Gentile sorcerers knew and came and laid down and worshiped. And the Pharisees, it sounds like the Essenes knew. The Essenes up in the Qumran caves, they knew. But uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't catch it. They didn't catch it. I don't, I don't know if it's because they weren't looking or if they were blinded. But this other group caught it. And they came to fall at the feet of Jesus and worship. And that's what they did. Um, when Herod catches it, when he, Herod believes the wise men, and Herod's reaction is not to worship. Herod's reaction is to kill the threat. Um, he's just a monster out of jealousy. He desires the worship. I think the Sadducees and the Pharisees, I don't know what was going on. But I just, it's very interesting. God communicates it to a bunch of shepherds who have nothing to do with the religious rule. And he communicates it. I assume that they're God-fearing shepherds based on their location. And then he communicates to these guys 900 miles away. Um, and it's also, it's also cool because if, if this group is the group that, that Daniel was put in charge of, you can still see the effect of a godly man over this company lasting for hundreds of years. What Daniel and, Sh- and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had done still had, still had sway, still showed of their God hundreds and hundreds of years later in, in one of the most pagan places in the world. Um, they just came. They came to worship. That's, that's what Christmas was to them. It was just a day to recognize uh, the king of heavens made flesh. And that gift continues to give. And I think, I think as far as the, everyone, like we said at the beginning, everyone likes to debate and talk about Christmas and what Christmas is to them. And what I think Christmas is, I think, I think they show, the wise men show, it is, it is our chance to sit at the feet. In this case, though, of someone who has done everything for us. At this point, he's done everything and we know what he did. And uh, so this was our Christmas time to reflect on Christmas and worshiping Jesus. And uh, I, think, I think the wise men have a lot to show us. I think it's more than three kings and a cool song and more people to put in your nativity because they weren't even there in their nativity. It's also interesting, the date of Christ's birth is probably September 11, 3 B.C., which we knew it was in September just based on festivals occurring, but kind of nailing that down with the astronomy program, that's fun. So, so that's where I'm at. I just wanted to say, hey, it's Christmas time, even though it's a week later. And Christmas time is a great time to just reflect on the sacrifice of the King of Heavens making himself flesh to do everything that he needed to do for us, to restore us. And so I'm going to pray. And so, Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the sacrifice you made in becoming flesh, of leaving that other part behind, coming down, spending time with us, providing yourself the sacrifice, doing what you did while you were dead, and then the rising again, and Lord, your ascension to the right hand of God. Lord, we celebrate that. Every day we celebrate you and your story and what you've done. 
And Lord, as we gather during holiday times and during our own versions of feasts, Lord, I just ask that we would continue to reflect on what you've done. And Lord, that we would always bring our best, that we would bring a sacrifice of worship to you. And we know what you've done. You've done so much for us. So Lord, we just, we worship you and we thank you. And Yahweh, I just thank you that you have your ways and you can telegraph to whomever you want the wonders of your name and the wonders of what you are doing. I thank you that you are in charge, that you control time. We serve a large creator God. We love you, Yahweh. Thank you. So Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would be with us throughout this week and let us glean what we can from this in our adoration of Jesus. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all you've done. In your name we pray. Amen.